Welcome to the podcast. Now, a conversation with Colorado State Representative Leslie Herod. In 2020, as protests erupted around the world in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, State Representative Herod led a successful bipartisan effort to pass police reform legislation in Colorado. We're going to talk with her about what was in that legislation and how implementation is going. 18 months later. I'm Carter Hedrick in Centennial, Colorado. Adobe Anawendi is in Lagos, Nigeria. And Adobe, we know this issue is one that creates strong emotions for many people. And we know there will be parts of this conversation that some people may find difficult to hear. But my hope is that everyone will come to the podcast with an open mind and that by having a discussion about how Colorado achieved police reform, we might create a little space for further conversations about policing in the United States. I couldn't agree more, Carter. It's a heavy conversation, but a necessary one. But I think in the end, um, yeah, we have to remain hopeful um, that people come to these conversations, all of our conversations, with you know open hearts and minds. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with this podcast, whether it's this episode or any other episode, is to have a conversation about some of the big challenges facing society today, but to have the conversation about ways that we might meet those challenges. And so in Colorado, we have chosen a path to meet those challenges, and Representative Herod has led us down that path. She will impress you as someone who has thought a lot about this and has a unique perspective as we think about police reform in the United States. Now on The Key and the Kite, a conversation with Colorado State Representative Leslie Herod. 5280 Magazine says, forget political stereotypes. Leslie Herod is unapologetically progressive, is insistent that state government can be bipartisan and wants to transform the criminal justice system. Representative Herod is the first LGBTQ African-American in Colorado's General Assembly. In 2018, Representative Herod championed a ballot initiative called Caring for Denver. The initiative created the largest mental health foundation in the state of Colorado. She is the daughter of a law enforcement officer, and she led the bipartisan effort for police reform in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Representative Herod, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here, and I'm excited to get to talk to you today about an issue that has been at the forefront of American life for quite a while now, and that is criminal justice reform and police reform. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So Colorado passed landmark police reform legislation in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit in a minute. But you were working on the issue of criminal justice reform before that murder happened. Why is this issue so important to you? It's important to me for many reasons. And and, and you're right. I have been working on this for a, for a while, quite frankly. Um, you know, I ran on this issue uh, as a campaign issue, but I've been dealing with it personally all my life. Um, you know, I'm a black woman, black queer woman. Uh, grew up in a military family uh, with a uh, black brother, one, one black brother, Marcus, uh, and also a sister, Kim, who um, has struggled with substance misuse and uh, the criminal justice system 
for about 30 years now. Thinking about criminal justice reform, police accountability, uh, justice in our country is something that I think as a woman of color, you know, has been so important and, and ever present in our lives. I feel like it's my duty to continue to work to make our country uh, and even planet better for those of us who are marginalized. And so it's something I've worked on for a long time. And I'm very honored and, and privileged to, to be able to say that I've had some success with making real change that I think impacts people's lives here. Do you remember the moment that you realized that the murder of George Floyd was not just an event that you would have to meet as a legislator, but also an event that Colorado was going to have to meet as a state. Here is something that happened, you know, a thousand miles away in Minneapolis, and yet it became something that was important around the world. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was interesting because I avoided watching that video on my phone for as long as I could, you know, I just would not watch it. I kept trying to scroll through it and, um, and not see the murder play out. Uh, and then finally I sat down and I was like, all right, it's time for me to watch this. We had just gotten back to the legislature, um, out of our kind of COVID recess. And I had watched the video the night before. Um, I was, uh, as troubled and upset and also, uh, uh, just feeling, um, I think a bit of this continues to happen, you know, maybe even a hopelessness when I watched the video, uh, and we went back in a session and it's like, you know, what is this all for? If we're still seeing, um, black men be murdered on our smartphones and people, uh, making excuses for it, like, it's okay. Uh, is this going to be another Trayvon and we're going to talk about things and, and not make the change that we need to make to ensure that no mother has to lose their child again. And that day we went back uh, in that first couple days. I remember there was a protest that started at the Capitol. Um, I was at work still, so decided to do what I think a lot of people should have done, but just went outside and listened to the protest and sat, uh, sat there. And quite frankly, um, Candidly, I was uh, shot at. There was someone who shot eight rounds of gunfire into uh, the crowd of protesters. There was only about 100 um, of folks out there. I wouldn't even call it a protest. I mean, it was a gathering, you know. One of those uh, gunshots, actually uh, bullets went into the Capitol building and I was rushed inside. You know, they had um, clearly been watching where I was and the, the Capitol was put on lockdown. You know, in that moment, uh, I was I was angry. I was just so upset that um, just even asking for people to respect black lives was something that someone felt was worth shooting at, you know, and people dying for. Uh, I had no idea what was going to come with these protests. I had no idea they were going to get so big and, and, and be so all encompassing in our cities. Um, but I do know that when my colleagues, you know, came to me and are you okay? And, you know, offered their, their words of concern. My response was, I don't really need your, your sympathy or your platitudes. Um, I want a bill um, and I want it to make a difference. And that's when I introduced and started working um, to revitalize a police accountability bill um, that I had initially worked on after the murder of Elijah McClain that did not get the traction it needed until after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and then we, we, we got that bill passed. Yeah, you think about the power of that video, and and like you, I avoided watching it for as long as I could because it just it sounded horrible, right? I mean, the yeah. hearing about it was horrible enough. You know, on a personal note, you and I met because my son Ramsey, who's now in his first year at McGill University, that moment did something for him, and he said, "Dad, I've got to go protest." And he got involved and he got engaged. And that was his first real engagement with true political activism. Mm -hmm. And as a dad, I. My wife, Kelly, and I had to make the 
the decision to let him go yeah. and let him go as a high school senior or a recent high school graduate. Now I've lost track of time already and where he is. COVID does that. COVID absolutely does that. But but to let him go to those protests and to figure that out on his own and to process some of that on his own. And, and he really did become passionate about it. And I'm so proud of him for deciding to take on that activism like so many people did, in, in not only in Denver, but around the world. But it's amazing to me how few places actually pass significant police reform legislation coming out of that after all of that protest. But we did here in Colorado, we did with your leadership. Tell me what was in that 2020 legislation. What did we do to reform police work here in Colorado? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think some folks might have thought the Colorado thing was a, a fluke or something that anyone could do, which I think, you know, happens when black women lead movements. Um, but honestly, it what did not happen in other places. And, and, and hopefully there's still an opportunity for that to happen. But we passed sweeping police accountability. Um, and I was very intentional about making sure that our bill was not multiple bills, was not was not something that people could divide and conquer, but really a solid bill that I thought would make some change. But that also really put together all of the things that activists and reformers have been talking about uh, for decades. The requiring of body cameras. Yes, that was basic and not sure why that hasn't happened, but that was a part of the movement in 2015, right? Uh, looking at ending qualified immunity for law enforcement officers. As a non-attorney, I had no idea what that meant when I first found out about it. Um, but as a policymaker, as I looked into it, you realize that so many cases are thrown out under qualified immunity and that qualified immunity really is just a fancy term for a shield for law enforcement to um, to violate someone's constitutional rights in our communities and, and to be shielded from accountability. So in Colorado and in that bill, we ended qualified immunity for law enforcement officers, had support from Democrats and Republicans on that issue because um, it's one that affects us all. We created a database that put bad officers into a public database that would tell folks that they were decertified because of excessive use of force. We required lifetime decertification for excessive use of force in our communities in violation of people's rights. And then we created a duty to intervene and a duty to report for other officers, like those who are standing by watching George Floyd be murdered, those who are standing by and watching Elijah McClain be murdered, we required them to intervene. And if they don't, they also commit a criminal offense. And we did a lot of data reporting in that as well. Um, we banned chokeholds altogether, chokeholds, carotid holds, all of that banned. And um, we also banned the fleeing felon defense where someone's running away and they get shot in the back, posing no harm to the community, but we've seen it time and time again, just shot in the back. And so um, all of that and, and some other things were put into one bill and I'm proud to say uh, that that one bill um, is making a difference. And we're seeing not only law enforcement officers being held to account, but also um, cultures changing within police departments um, because of the work. And, and I, I'm proud of the people of Colorado, black, brown, white, every, everything, every race, every um, sexual orientation, religion, political um, identification stood up and said, we want reform. We want 217 and didn't end the protests until the bill was passed. I'm really curious. You mentioned that everyone came together behind this bill. This bill passed quickly, especially by legislative standards. And yet at the same time, it was bipartisan. You included police and law enforcement officers in the conversations about the bill. How did you put together 
that support for this bill in a political era that feels really fractured most of the time? Blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, there was no sleep. Um, And, you know, to be honest, all of our bills passed in that amount of time because of COVID. We had a very uh, abbreviated session, um, but that that kind of crunch time helps people to just focus. If you, there's a saying, right, that we have in the Capitol, if you give someone a year to do something, they'll take that entire year and the negotiations won't happen in the last five days, you know? Uh, and so that's really what happened. And so we negotiated every day. But I think um, one of the un, undersung heroes of the passage of 217 was um, our president of the Senate, Leroy Garcia, because in, in Colorado, we passed one bill through both houses. So it's not separate bills. And he was my co-prime sponsor. So he was the prime sponsor in the Senate. And he's a, a Latino man. And as his leadership helped so much to force the negotiations, um, we met in his office every day, almost all day, in most instances, to get the bill negotiated and to get it through. Um, he spent weekends also negotiating with his members, as I spent with my members in the House. And to have that dedication, I think, was was so important because I couldn't do it alone. Um, and so he really came as someone who had opposed um, some accountability mechanisms for police in the past. Uh, he came to the table and said, it's gone too far. Um, and it's really time for us to hold our officers to the standard that that they should be held to and that those in our communities who are sworn to serve and protect actually do. And so he really helped those negotiations along as well. And uh, together we were able to, to pass a bill that is a model for the country and I know is keeping Coloradans safer. You did this all about 18 months ago, been in effect now for over a year. How's it working? Yeah, I mean, we've seen um, nearly a dozen officers uh, who have actually been arrested for excessive use of force um, and decertified uh, or put in the legal system. We have seen uh, entire departments being put under pattern and practice investigations by our attorney general saying not only is these officers responsible, but the entire department is responsible for allowing um, this uh, miscarriage of justice really to happen and this harm to be done in our communities. We've seen culture changes where people, law enforcement officers are reporting each other due to that, the requirement to intervene or report. Um, and they're saying, I'm no longer going to quote unquote, back the blue, but instead I'm going to back my community and back, back the profession in a way that makes us all better. And so we're seeing it working. Um, we're also seeing people decide to leave a little bit because they don't want to be held to those standards. Quite frankly, I think that that's a good thing. We're seeing it working really well. And I'm proud of some of the chiefs and sheriffs across the state who are really standing behind this law and holding the people in their departments accountable. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because we have had some police chiefs in Colorado and a few officers who have talked to the media about not wanting to serve under this law and saying that I read an article last night with a police officer who moved to another state um, and is is now a police officer in another state. And he said the reason I'm moving is because of this law. Uh, Some chiefs have said it makes hiring difficult. What's happening inside police departments is really when you think about the impact of this law, the goal really has to be that culture change that you've talked about. Those folks who want to leave because of accountability, I say goodbye. 
You know, I mean, I hope you don't go to another state. Uh, I don't think that's safe for anyone because um, that's really what you're saying. But uh, to break down the, the the data and to what you really look into it, you realize that Colorado is the only state that has passed such sweeping reform. We have no higher rates of, uh, of officers leaving the force or retiring or re- poor recruitment than any other place right now. We have seen COVID, obviously, uh, and the protests make people not want to be officers, but there was recruitment issues before um, the George Floyd murder. Our police departments were, were hurting for people and doing incentive programs you know, on TV, on commercials, because folks didn't want to work as an officer. Why? Because they didn't see integrity in that profession. You know, We see fewer and fewer young kids saying, I want to be an officer when I grow up. I want to be a police officer. Um, and it's because they see it too. They see the harm that's done in the communities. And so we're lifting up this profession for all. I will say that my father is a law enforcement officer retired. He actually is a correctional, was a correctional officer at Supermax Prison in Southern Colorado. He started as a groundskeeper, worked his way up to become a trainer and the head of internal investigations. A lot of the work that I do is because I see him being uh, hesitant to tell his grandchildren that he was an officer. And he should be proud of the work that he did and who he is. And I want to change that. You know, I want to change the perception that being a law enforcement officer is the worst profession and and our folks who want to get away with murder and make it one where we can all feel comfortable and safe saying, I need help and I'm going to be okay calling 911 or I'm going to be okay asking this officer to help me. It's not right now. That's not happening in our communities and it's not happening for everyone. And we've got to change that. That's what this bill does. But no. We are not seeing any mass exodus. In fact, our, our vaccine mandate did more for mass exodus <laughs> law enforcement than the passage of police accountability. Um, but um, and nor, nor is that the goal. The goal is just to hold folks to the right standard. I was really interested in this idea of, of you being the daughter of a law enforcement officer and coming to this issue. And how did, how did that influence how you thought about this issue? I mean, I was proud my dad every day and and I should I should say that my dad is not my biological father this might be getting too far into the weeds my biological father passed away but my dad is someone who chose to raise me and I always looked up to him and I still do I mean he's the best man I know and I'm so glad to have him as a role model in my life and and seeing him go to work every day to take care of the family and put on that uniform I was real proud of him still am real proud of him and then having someone though who I can have these candid conversations he's obviously he's also I shouldn't say obviously, but he's also a man of color. Uh, He's not black. He's Latino. And knowing that, you know, he could actually face harm too, if he's not in his uniform out in the community. And he talks about that. My brother could face that harm and that's not okay. He also showed me what it meant to be a good officer. He never had to draw his weapon inside of a correctional facility on anybody, even in riot. There were other means to protect himself and his staff and his people. And that's what he did. And he also earned the respect of the folks who were there and was not heart. You know, I think that's so, so, so very important that bad things do happen and there are ways to deal with them. And sometimes it does require using a firearm, but not most and not in most instances, and especially not what we're seeing. And to see him hurting when he saw uh, these videos and to hear him talk about it, not in a way that was protection and back the blue and all of this, but instead we need to do better. Uh, it, that was my call to step into this work and to, to, to do the work that I can to hold folks accountable and to make the profession better. Yeah. One of the things that struck me in all of this and, and in wanting to talk to you for the podcast is I have friends in law enforcement 
And what they say in private is completely different than kind of the public debate discourse that's going on. And it felt like a disconnect. And I really appreciate you being able to bring those two those two sides together with your life experience. Thank you. Uh, yeah. In 2021, legislature came back and you helped drive further reform. <laughs> and you mentioned Elijah McLean. Talk a little bit about what happened to Elijah and how his death helped spur further reform in Colorado. Well, Elijah McLean was murdered by um, law enforcement and paramedics and really paramedics at the direction of law enforcement. Um, he was a young black man who was walking uh, to the grocery store and was someone that said that he was suspicious. He looked suspicious. He was never even uh, thought of as someone who committed a crime. You know, no one was, no one suspected him of any crime. He just looked suspicious in his own, in his own neighborhood. Law enforcement uh, encountered him. They did put him in, cho- in a chokehold. Uh, paramedics arrived on scene and they injected him with ketamine, far too much ketamine. My brother is actually an anesthesiologist, if you can believe that. And so um, far too much ketamine. I mean, then he could legally, like he could take his, in his body or that anyone would prescribe to him or, or give him. And he died. He died uh, uh, at the hospital um, later on. And his mother really has led the reform. Shanine McLean has been such a key factor in us getting police accountability uh, done. But further, she said, we can't be using ketamine anymore. We don't need to inject people against their will at the direction of law enforcement with a drug that can kill them. This is not a video game. You know, this is not a superhero movie. This is, these are real people. And when you inject them with ketamine, they die. And in Colorado, we had a huge increase of the use of ketamine in the field, not in a hospital where someone can be brought back to life or be safely, safely use this drug. Um, and they were dying. Um, and they also span race and sex, but we did see a disproportionality with men of color. So we worked on 12, uh, House Bill 1251 uh, to extremely limit the use of ketamine uh, in Colorado. And the governor followed up by putting a moratorium on its usage across uh, the state of Colorado in the field because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. So uh, I'm, I'm proud of that work, and I'm, I'm just proud of the power of people who are willing to stand up and say, no more. Um, we're not going to let this continue to happen. And Janine McLean is really uh, the embodiment of that. Yeah, the story of Elijah McLean is so tragic because he's literally just walking to the store. There's nothing else going on there. And it's just mind-boggling kind of what happened to him. And the amount of protests that it took in Aurora to, yeah. to, to kind of help bring his story to light and help drive that that change. You know, we started this conversation, Rep. Herod, talking about the fact that criminal justice reform has been a focal point for you. Some of your early work was focused on mental health and policing, and the idea that in many ways we have piled just about every problem in society on our police and said, you know, figure out how to deal with it, even if it's not a law enforcement problem. You did a TED Talk about work that you've done and an issue area that, that you're interested in, in getting mental health folks into the field to deal with mental health crises instead of having police do that. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, listen, the calls for police have gone, you're right. They're, they're for all kinds of reasons that police are not trained to, to deal with. And one of them is, is, is mental health crisis. I had the opportunity to visit a program out in Eugene, Oregon called Cahoots, where instead of sending or maybe alongside of law enforcement, when you call 911 for a mental health crisis, you actually get an EMT 
and a mental health professional. So the right person responds to the issue that you're having. And it's it's working. It's worked there for about 30 years, if not a little bit more. And um, I just didn't understand why. And I watched, I went on a ride along. I saw this happening. I saw it unfold. And, you know, I did understand why we didn't have that in all of our cities. And so um, having recently passed a ballot measure called Caring for Denver and running a mental health foundation, I was able to incentivize the city uh, to create a cahoots-like model right here in Denver called STAR. And STAR does that same thing. It's attached to 911. You get a mental health professional and an EMT responding to calls. Um, and we're finding that it's working really, really well. Zero negative instances on these calls, zero referrals to police. Um, police are working hand in hand though, because they're like, hey, I can't take care of this. Star, you come in. And they're spending way more time with people and getting them connected to the services that they need. Uh, and we're also able to build more infrastructure and services for the people of Denver as needed. And so I'm really proud of that work. Uh, we have put too much on the criminal justice system or injustice system, if you will, too, and jails. I mean, we can't can't, can't incarcerate ourselves out of mental health. It's not working, right? Can you imagine being sent to jail because you broke your leg? But we're doing it when you have a mental mental illness. Like that makes no sense. And so, so we're trying to change that paradigm. And I did it in partnership with the chief of police. I got to be honest with you. Um, chief Pazin here was a commander at the time when I went to visit Cahoots. And he's the one that sent me. He said, you got to see Cahoots. You got to see Cahoots. And I was like, I don't know if you're sneezing or if this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally figured it out. And I went out there and I was blown away. And him and I together, along with some other really just amazing people, were able to stand that up in Denver. And now it's a core program offered um, by Denver Emergency Response. I would love to see it move statewide in Colorado. As a resident of the suburbs, I'd love to see it expand beyond Denver. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's next for criminal justice reform, police reform in Colorado? We've, we've been through kind of two sessions. We did the major reform uh, two sessions ago, uh, some more reform last session. What's next on the horizon? What, what still needs to be done? Yeah, well, the injustices in our system were not built overnight, right? Nor were they topple overnight and so or by one or two bills. So the way I look at it is that there has been brick by brick, these barriers that have been put up in our system that have created so much injustice, so much hardship for people um, that it's it's immense, it's huge. You know, if you can visualize the great wall that is, um, that is this injustice and inequality in our country. And so my goal is to pull those bricks down brick by brick until it all topples. And that's gonna continue to take time. It's gonna take more than one person uh, and it's gonna take working across systems, not just on criminal justice. Criminal justice reform is not just policing or sentencing. It's also education, it's jobs, it's uh, it's workforce development and housing, it's, it, it's, it's all of environmental justice, it's all of those areas. And so when we talk about how we create a more just society, we have to look at each and every one of those areas and all of the bricks that have been built up within those areas. And so, you know, what's next specifically for criminal justice reform? You know, I think there's still a lot of bricks that need to come down. Uh, I'm working right now uh, within this, within the prisons again, looking at um, workforce development and our, you know, opportunities for our inmates um, and offenders to learn how to build tiny homes in communities that need them, especially in rural Colorado, who are also having housing shortages. But then allowing them to actually, when they transition out, 
stay there and stay with that company and continue to work. The, the companies want it, <laughs> the, the, um, the inmates want it, and the community actually is now wanted as well. And so rethinking how the system is built and what are these requirements that we're putting on these systems, um, that's, that's, those are the next steps. And I think together we're gonna make some real change. Um, I'm looking to states like, like uh, California, they're doing some really interesting work with one of their DAs out there in, in San Francisco. Uh, we're looking at a really progressive uh, kind of DA movement throughout the country, which I think is really interesting. Um, so keeping an eye to that. Uh, and then knowing that Colorado is a leader, having conversations with people who are incarcerated, people who are correctional officers, people who are law enforcement and activists, and saying, what do you think needs to change to make this community better? Uh, and where can we find that commonality so that we can at least start pulling out more of those bricks? I do think it's really important to think about people who have served uh, time and are getting out. And so often they get out and there's nowhere for them to go yeah, and nothing for them to do. Yeah. And it's, and, and I can't imagine how hard it must be to try to pick yourself up from that point. And, and I love the idea of, of working on the housing crisis because most of the country's in a housing crisis, right. And doing that, you know, with some of these folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I'm really curious. You told the Denver CBS affiliate years ago that you fear waking up and discovering that the work you've done is not enough. Mm -hmm. You've been in the legislature now for five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you still worry, wake up with that worry, with that fear? I do. Um, and, and I think that's what drives me to continue to do the work and do more. And, you know, that that question, it, it's something that I ask myself a lot, like, have I done enough? And, you know, I think it's different than am I good enough? You know, and I've got to remember that. But really, it's more about what else can we do? Because those bricks are not that, that wall is not down. I, I can't just say that I, I did this one thing and it's over. We've got to keep doing the work. We've got to keep pushing. And we can't just think Ivy Tower, you know, that here we are up here as elected officials. And we're just, you know, we're just going to keep this title for as long as we can. But instead, what more can we do? You know, I don't think I'll ever be able to do enough. I think I'll know that I've given it my all, though. Um, but we're not going to be done until there are no more Shanine McLeans who have lost their child. We're just not. We're not going to be done until we have a justice system that is truly just and fair, uh, an education system that's not riddled with inequalities that we all seem to some for some reason accept. You know, um, we're not going to be done until we create a society that is really just and is really fair and, and, and empowering and kind to all of us. So we'll keep doing the work. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the work that you've done. However you define the word enough, you certainly have done a lot with Colorado being the only state that responded to George Floyd's murder by passing significant, serious police reform. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Carter, on this one, I've got to tell you, I listened to this, most of it with my 14-year-old nephew, by the way. And we'll talk later about some of the things he said. Um, this was really a facet. Well, all of them are fascinating, but this was particularly um, interesting to listen to for a number of reasons. 
I've mentioned to you before that I left the United States in 2007 after just over 20 years. I left a fairly comfortable life with three very young children to move all the way to Nigeria in West Africa. Because my comfortable life notwithstanding, I was very afraid of raising Black children in America. I felt ill-equipped to protect them and raise them in the manner, in quotes, Black kids in America have to be raised to ensure protection from police brutality. Sad but true. So this one really struck at my heart. I'm really curious. You mentioned that, actually, in our last episode. And at the time, I decided to uh, not engage in conversation because I knew this was coming up. That's a heavy decision to make. It is. Yeah, so I, I, I did grow up in that. I grew up in Europe. Um, I, I spent my elementary years in Nigeria, but I grew up for the most part outside of Nigeria. Um, spent 20 years in the US. So it's sort of like I, you know, pre-college, college, and then started my, my career in the States, got married, had kids. So really, the US was really the bulk of my life. But Carter, I was always afraid. So when I think of my life in the US and I think of my life in Nigeria, I mean, I could be driving on the wrong side of the road with the wrong car plates. I could be doing everything wrong in the streets of Lagos um, and see a cop and not be afraid. In the US, I actually find it really difficult to drive with my children as a full adult in the US because I'm always afraid of a police incident. Always. I'm, I'm, I've turned 50 now. Um, we'll test this next time I'm in the U.S. But um, I've always been afraid of raising black children in the U.S. because I didn't have a typical black experience. And I feel very or I felt then I was in my 20s. I felt very un, ill prepared um, to raise children, black children in, in a manner that they would you know, be protected. I've lived in mostly, you know, middle-class neighborhoods my entire life. I've never had a police incident. I've, I've just never had any reason to be fearful of law enforcement, but I am. It's really yeah. hard to hear that. Yeah. It's hard to hear that, first of all, because my experience is so very different as a 50-year-old white guy, but also because I have uh, extended family that are Native American, extended family that are African American. Mm -hmm. And I do worry about them to a certain extent. And they and some mm -hmm. of them have had incidents where they were unfairly targeted by police. At the same right. time, I have friends who are police officers. I have friends whose parents are police officers. I have friends whose kids are police officers. And so for this issue, I feel really torn between between mm -hmm. the two sides. And I and do, it's part of the reason that I wanted to have Representative Herod on the show is because she lives this in a very in a very unique way. She is African American. She is also the daughter of a law enforcement officer. And so when I first heard of her and then when I first met her, one of the things that really impressed me was here is a woman who can talk to both sides from a position and an experience of lived experience, right? She she's lived in both in both sides, and and I thought that gives her a unique perspective on all of this, and it gives her an opportunity to have conversations to help drive 
legislative change and drive police reform that maybe others can't do. But having said all of that, you know, I think what strikes me about your comment is something that Representative Herod and I touched on a little bit, which Mm -hmm. is this isn't about just changing individual officer behaviors. There there are cultures that need to be changed in policing in the United States. Once we change that culture, you'll be able to come back to visit the United States, maybe live in the United States again, and, and not have that fear. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. And Carter, I think it's it's specifically because I've had this conversation so many times and people say, oh, but Nigeria is so unsafe and there's this and there's that. But I think the thing that that really scares me about the first of all, it's the randomness of, of the way things play out. And um, and you know, we've seen so many videos of how really non-confrontational, I mean, really random, ordinary interactions just turns violent for no reason. So this idea that you could teach your kids to do all the right things, you know, my kids are very well-mannered. You could do all the right things, Carter, and still end up dead. Yeah, that's the story of Elijah yeah. McLean in Aurora, that's Colorado, right? Exactly. He's literally just walking to the store. Exactly. exactly. All he's doing. Right. And he ends up right. dying for it. Right. The other side of this, though, is that Police reform, I think so often in the United States, police reform, you even just talk about that idea and mm. people get their guard up and right. and they get defensive and they get dug in and they're not willing to have the conversation. I tried to make this point with briefly with Representative Herod, which is police reform in many respects, is about taking duties that we have just piled on police officers that they're really not trained or equipped to deal with, nor should they ever have to deal with, really, unless it's an absolute last resort, taking those responsibilities off their shoulders. Absolutely. You know, you think about, you know, the, the Representative Herod and I touched on on the mental health reform work that mm-hmm. she is engaged in and has been engaged mm-hmm. in. And what's happening in Denver, what happened in Eugene, Oregon, it makes so much more sense to have a mental health professional go to someone who's having a mental health crisis than it does to have a law enforcement officer go to someone who's having a mental health crisis. Absolutely. In fact, I really want to talk about that STAR program. It's one of the three things I wanted to talk about. So I was listening to this. I, I I was taking notes and my nephew repeated the quote he said wow she said we can't incarcerate ourselves out of mental health yeah i've actually written that down yeah and this 14 year old kid picked up on that and then we talked about it and you realize that it's actually unfair and i think the reason why a lot of law enforcement and many of us who do defend them actually because most of them of course, are doing the right thing and do, you know, swear to protect and serve and do protect and serve. And that's what they get up every morning to do. But I think the reason why it's, you know, it's a difficult conversation to have is you almost, I can understand the frustration. I mean, Carter, imagine you're, you lose your dog, you're calling the cops. You're having a mental health issue, you're calling the cops. I mean, you call the cops for everything. And so the STAR program and everything, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course, when your child, your 15-year-old is having a mental health crisis, you're not calling armed officers. You're calling an EMT and a mental health professional because that's, that's what they need. 
So this idea of putting too much on the criminal justice system, I could I could understand why. I mean, these guys are overwhelmed. It doesn't justify what's happened. It you know it doesn't justify this culture of you know yes that you know you do have people who are triggered. You have that, but I'd like to believe that the greater majority of law enforcement officials are just overwhelmed, frustrated. So the STAR program, I think, is such an amazing thing that, you know, I mean, I think not just the state of Colorado, but all over the U.S., you know, it's one that people need to really look into and, and, and understand why it's working and how you can replicate that in, in other places. Because it, it seems like a no-brainer, but it, it's clearly not happening. The other thing you've got now is you've got data from Eugene, from Denver, mm. from all of these cities that have adopted it that mm-hmm. says it really works. It works. I was talking with someone about the STAR program in Eugene and what's happening in Denver. And one of the things that they said was, but what happens if the situation gets dangerous? Don't you want a police officer there? And what the data shows, what the results show Mm. is Mm. that it seldom gets dangerous because you've got a professional dealing with it. Exactly. And when it does, you can bring in police as backup, right? right? And right. and and that's the role police should play in that the system really does work. I don't know what's going to happen in Colorado where I live. I know that mm-hmm. it, it's working in Denver. I don't know if there's going to be legislation, you know, or activity at the legislature to try to expand it statewide, but there really needs to be because it's such a success. Talking about legislation, um, 217, that was a real eye-opener for me. I always wondered how there just never seemed to be any situation where a law enforcement officer got prosecuted for, I mean, now it's happening more now, but this whole idea of qualified immunity, I'd never heard it. Yeah. So I researched it. So now it makes sense to me because I used to wonder, well, but it's so obvious. It's such a no brainer. How could they get away with this? Well, because they can. Right. Yeah. And I guess that's, you know, this, you know, providing police officers with protection from civil lawsuits. You kind of understand why. But this that that subjective part about so long as their conduct does not violate clearly established law or constitutional rights of which a reasonable officer would have known. And so it's so vague. And for the first time, I was like, bingo. So it, I'm not crazy. They, they do get away with it because they are protected from, um, from, and I just never, I'm one of those people who I've never taken the time to study like law enforcement. By the way, I never, to this day, I have not seen that George Floyd video. I've never, I've seen his face. I've seen stills, but I've never watched that video. Yeah, I can't. I just, you know, there's just some things you'd just rather not see. And um, my nephew as well has never seen it. And it's funny, I was telling my nephew, I have an an image. I might have shared it on Facebook, actually. It's my three kids, age 17, 14 and 12, all seated around the TV. CNN is on and the look on their faces. It was when the reporting started coming out. And it's such a poignant photograph. It's a beautiful photo, but it's also a really depressing photo. And you could just see the intensity in their in their eyes and just their body language. And Carter, quite honestly, um, I was really happy that we were not in the U.S., last year when this whole thing was playing out. And I remember reading your post about Ramsey going to protest. And a part of me 
I was afraid for a second and I thought, well, but he's white, so he'd be all right. But I'm glad I'm not the parent who's trying to stop my kids from going out to protest. <laughs> I, so, so, so for folks who don't know, Ramsey's my, my son. He's, he's now a freshman in college. The murder of George Floyd really had an impact on him. And he immediately said, I, I need to go protest. Hmm. And as a parent understanding, really understanding how combustible the situation was, that was a little nerve wracking for us. And, mm. and do we, do we go with him? Do we let him go on his own? How do we, you know, how do we make those decisions? And we ultimately decided to let him go on his own and spent a lot of time talking with him about staying safe in a protest. I had some experience years ago uh, when I was in college of learning how to keep protesters safe and how to keep mm. protests safe and some training. And so I went back to that and kind of talked him through some of that. I'm really proud of him and really proud of, of his willingness to stand up and take a stand for what he believes. And I think it's important. It, it also was scary. He was in Aurora protesting Elijah McClain when the Aurora police unleashed tear gas, on, tear gas on the crowd. By the way, completely calm crowd, kids playing violins, and the Aurora police released tear gas for no reason at all. Um, he was marching down the street when someone drove a vehicle into, a, into the protest and someone else shot a gun. And, and so you deal with that. And then, and then he got a death threat snail mailed to our house, um, with his name on it. And so you think about these things and you think about what it means to stand up for your beliefs. And I couldn't be more proud of him. And last summer was stressful for a whole lot of reasons, and and to be honest, his his standing up for his beliefs added to that stress. But I'm glad he was able to do it. I'm so glad. I have, I have goosebumps. I'm so proud that your son did that. I'm so proud to know him through you. And it's funny, I, I shared that post with my kids and my then 17-year-old daughter said to me, Mom, would you have let us go? And Carter, I, you know, I said, no. Yeah. And she said, well, Mom, you're always writing and talking about rights. And I said, yes. But for some scary reason, I, I just don't feel like we, your, my husband and I have equipped these very black children who have not lived the typical black experience. I just don't feel that we have equipped them for that. So no, I don't know. I'd rather they did fundraisers and um, any other way, but not protesting. One and of the things that happened heart. for one of the things that happened for Ramsey is he and, and it was protesting that resulted in him getting to know Representative Herod, and he's the one who introduced me to Representative Herod. You know, through his activism, he got introduced to legislators, he got introduced to city council members, he got introduced to people who were willing to help him learn and grow and understand how to use his voice uh, in an appropriate way. Great experience, Carter. What a great experience. Well, I know that my kids will listen to this podcast 
And I'm hopeful um, that my attitudes will change because obviously great work is being done. And I'm such a believer in humanity. And I don't believe that people are fundamentally bad. I really don't. I believe situations and, um, you know, lack of understanding and lack of knowledge and ignorance plays into a lot of these, these, these situations. But I have to say two things that will make you and Representative Herod really happy when she hears this. So it's clearly an impressive piece of legislation, right? Yes. And the fact that Colorado, Colorado should, you Coloradans should really be proud as being the only state. Really? Are you really the only state that responded to the Floyd death by passing? It got, um, it got politicized and partisan in other states. One of the things that Representative Herod did so well here in Colorado is mm. to engage all of the interested parties and to do everything she could to pass this legislation in a bipartisan way. And I think that's the difference between Colorado and, and unfortunately, the other 49 states. And what a feat at a time like this, by the way. Yeah. Right? What a feat. Yeah. Well, this is the part I know she will love. So my nephew, who is 14, has always said he had no desire to go to college in the U.S., has no desire to live in the U.S. as an adult. But Carter, after listening to your conversation, he said to me, Auntie, what state is that again? And I said, Colorado. And he wrote it down and he said, I'm going to do some research and talk to my parents about possibly going to school in Colorado. True story. That's amazing. And I thought, we would love wow, to have him. Honestly. And I said to him, I said, that's great. But, you know, tell me specifically why. And he said, well, all the things I'm really afraid of in the U.S. I mean, here's a state that is really working to keep black people safe. That's his 14 year old mind. talking. <laughs> he said, here's a state that's really working to keep black people safe. And I thought, what a great, I mean, he, that's what he took out of this conversation. So you and representative Herod should be really proud. I mean, I really wanted to do this conversation because so there was so much, it was so loaded. And the fact that I, I listened to it with my nephew, it addressed a lot of my fears, a lot of the things that, you know, make me very fearful of, of life in this great country that, you know, has given me so much. I went to college in the U.S. I was born in the U.S. You know, so much of who I am today is, a is as a result of my experiences there. And yet I don't feel safe there. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I will say there, we have a long ways to go. The, the work is not done yet. As, as Representative Herod said, it's good that we're doing the work. And I hope I know that people are going to be listening to this podcast who are going to be coming to this podcast from a defensive posture. They're going to be coming to this podcast um, uneasy about how this conversation may play out. And I hope that as they're listening to this, that they understand that this isn't an effort to paint individual police officers in a negative life, to pay, paint individual law enforcement officers in a negative light. And the whole point of police reform is to make it easier for police officers to do their job without having to kill a thousand people a year, which is what police officers in the United States do. Gosh, a thousand people a year. 
But that's a really important point, right? Nobody should walk away from this thinking that this is in any way, you know, we're not speaking ill of law enforcement. We're just, you know, we're having a conversation about something that happens, right? But I love the fact that Representative Herod's Latino father, at least the the person who raised her, the person she calls dad, um, Latino. I love the story about the fact that he'd worked in a super max prison and he never once pulled a gun, she said. He never harmed an inmate put a uniform on every day. His family, especially her, was so proud to see him go to work every day. Yet he's apprehensive about sharing this career with his grandkids. Yeah. That broke my heart. Yeah. That was tough. Um, So I think the work she's doing also has to help people appreciate the fact that it's not a bad profession. And I think with reform, with education, with the hearts and minds change, it could be what it was set out to be. I think that's right. Even as we talk about it, I think the idea of protect and serve is a framework that we need to get back to as opposed to law enforcement. Right. In the United States, law enforcement officers are given tremendous power, the right to detain the right to kill, the right to use lethal force. And with that power comes such great responsibility. We have been unfair to our uh, law enforcement officers in asking them to do things that they shouldn't have to do. And we need to stop doing that. But we also have to make sure they understand that we demand a higher standard of them. But we are hopeful. We are. No, absolutely. I think change is change is coming. I think the change is positive. I think there will whenever you have change, there will be a bump in the road as people adjust to the change. But then the adjustment will happen and we'll all move on. Amen to that. Well, that was an intense topic. And I was really grateful to Representative Herod for agreeing to come on the podcast and to and to talk about her experience. I think her experience is such a unique perspective. And I think there's a lot that people outside of Colorado can learn from the experience here in Colorado. Uh, For me, it's a very personal story because of the work that Ramsey did. Also because I know so many people in Minneapolis that uh, were connected in one way or another to the George Floyd murder. Uh, I know the Hennepin County attorney. I know his deputy that was leading up the work there. I've met the attorney general. I have a friend who had met George Floyd a couple of times. There's a lot of connections there for me. And, And so for me, all of this tied together in very personal ways. And I wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about it. I'm so glad we did, Carter. The George Floyd murder wasn't just an American tragedy. Um, the whole world felt this. So great conversation. I'm really glad it was tough for me, you know, conjuring up all my fears and the things that really trouble me about um, law enforcement in the U.S. Um, it's something I really struggle with. So um, this was a great conversation. The fact that my, you know, my 14 year old nephew um, had a, a small change of heart as a result of this conversation um, it is really a sign of, of hope. What a so, great, what a great you. story. I'm glad he, I'm glad he had a change of heart. He's welcome in Colorado. Uh, we'd love to, we'd love to see him. I'd love to meet him and, and show him our wonderful state. We might just take you up on that. Next time on the podcast, we're going to talk uh, about a much lighter subject. Uh, and that is Hollywood and movies and television. We're going to talk with Kate Caldwell Ambrose, who is an Emmy nominated casting director 
I know so little about pop culture. I know so little about Hollywood and so little about movies and TVs. I wanted to have Kate on to just ask her, what in the world does a casting director do? And learn a little bit more about it. Uh, we'll also talk about what's good uh, to stream right now, what her favorite shows are, what she's watching. And uh, look for a, a fun and light conversation with Kate. I don't know if you know this, Carter, but I did public relations for a PR firm called Rogers and Cowan in Los Angeles. And it was entertainment PR. Oh, nice. So I, did st- I, I do have a bit of a Hollywood background as well. So I'm really looking forward to hearing. So you will know so much more about what Kate is talking about than I did. I just might, Carter. I just might. Thanks, Adobe. Thank you, Carter. Stay safe. The Key and the Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter, and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for the Key and the Kite is written and performed by the AV Grouse Band. The first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Telltale Heart, debuted at number 7 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.